Um, I wanted to send my thanks um, to you as a church. I was overwhelmed on Friday night with your um, care for my family, specifically my eldest son who graduated last week. So thank you for your care for us, the family. I was just uh, renewed in my awareness of the joy that we have of being together as a church family and that we are a family. We're not just people who gather together on Sunday mornings, but we're a church family and And we felt that on Friday night. And then thank you as well for specifically the advisory team and Aaron in uh, not, I won't say forcing, but encouraging us to go (laughs) on sabbatical. We are grateful and we are looking forward to it. Thank you for you as a church for enabling us to be able to go and take time away to do that. We are looking forward to the time, but I'm just aware of how generous and grateful, how, how, how kind God has been to us and to us as a church, and we have so much affection for you. Um, Our family has so much affection for each and every one of you, and um, we're going to be away for eight weeks, so we'll miss our family here, but I trust that God will bring us back even, um, even stronger as a result, so we're looking forward to coming back and being with you again in eight weeks from now. So turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, if you're a visitor here with us, we've been going through the book of Revelation. Yeah, really, Revelation. And it's been a great time, actually. Our church has thoroughly enjoyed it because um, we've not coming to it with any one kind of end times perspective, not trying to read into the text. What we're doing is each week saying, okay, what what does this text have to say to us, to God's people, to the church? Because as we remember, and every week I'm going to keep reminding us of this, and then eight weeks from now, actually... I'm not going to be preaching, but Andy Nacelli is going to pick up where we left off in chapter 12 of Revelation, and so he'll kick us off with that again. But every time we're in Revelation, we need to remember, it's meant for us to hear and keep. This is meant to be a practical book, not some weird esoteric book, and so it's meant for us to hear it and to keep it. And I love how last week we saw God's faithfulness in and through the midst of persecution, and today we kind of get a breather. Um, It's kind of like the pressure lets off and God lets us see what the end will be like in the future, in in the future to come. So let's read together in Revelation 11, verses 15 to 19. This is God's holy, inspired word. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord And of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged. But your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these glimpses of what is to come. 
Thank you for giving us your assurance through passages like this. Thank you that passages like this are meant to give us assurance that functions for us each and every day in our lives. God, I pray that would be the result. This passage would, would functionally affect us today and each and every day. May we keep this eternal truth before us. May this motivate us, may it inspire us, may it give us hope. I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit this morning, as you would fill your people with your Holy Spirit this morning. We need you, and thank you that we can come to you asking for more of you because you love us. You've died for us, Jesus, and you've, Father, you've given us all that we need. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I remember a few years back, probably close to 10 years ago, um, a guy who used to attend the church here and moved away to Northern Virginia. His dad was a director of communications for NASCAR. And for those of you who are from the South, you'll know what NASCAR is. For everybody else from somewhere else, you might not. Um, but it's where they race around a track and make a lot of left-hand turns. Actually, this way, sorry. Make a lot of left-hand turns. Um, I, I've never really appreciated NASCAR as much. My dad loves it. And uh, he would watch it every Sunday or pretend to watch it falling asleep. So until we went to the race in Charlotte with the communications director, and we got an inside tour. We got an inside behind-the-scenes tour of everything that goes on. So not only did we see the pits, but we saw what really takes place. We, we got to go into the garage and see him working on the cars. Um, we got to go into where the, the press briefing was beforehand and afterwards. We saw it with the drivers. We got to be in the driver's meeting where they're giving them instructions. We, we got to be with them in all the inner things that the press weren't allowed to go to. We, we went and actually had chapel with the driver's families, and that was a, a neat time. And then I remember as we were walking out, we saw them setting up the victor's circle with a place where they were going to have the, the celebration afterwards for whoever won, you know, they do that victory lap, and then they end up in that circle. And, and what, what I was struck with was every detail of the race, every detail of, of, of this event was planned down to a T, down to the very smallest detail, everything they were going to say and do on the, in, the, in the victor's circle, everything was planned Except they didn't know who was going to win. They had no idea who was going to win. There was no way of knowing, you know, who would win from this huge field of competitors. There was a lot of cars. I don't know how many, those NASCAR aficionados, you can tell me how many cars are typically in a NASCAR race. I don't know. It's a lot. Um, But there was no way of knowing the outcome of that race and who would be victorious. Everything was planned, but it was really uncertain. I was thinking, that's really a picture of us sometimes as believers. We can think, you know what, we know that God's got everything planned. We know that God has everything in control. We know that God has all the details, that he's sovereign in, in, in all of life, and that he's over all things, and there's, there's nothing outside of his purview. But we can live functionally as if we don't really know who the victor is. We can live functionally as if, you know, we're not sure who's really going to be victorious. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you place your faith in him for the forgiveness of sins, then hopefully you know that in the end, Jesus wins. We, we, we heard that from Aaron last week as we closed, that in the end, Jesus wins. But we can live sometimes if we're not sure. We can live as if we're functionally, you know what, I'm not really sure who's going to win. I know that God says he's got everything in control, but it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't look that way. We're not really sure. 
So what's happening here in this passage in the midst of, we've had a lot of different things happening in Revelation so far, and everything from Revelation 4 to this chapter, Revelation 11, it's been one solid block of really what's happening in the throne room of God, that God's plans and his purposes are unfolding, that they are sure, that the church can be secured, that we're kept, we're sealed. And then we've seen the, the opening of the seals, God's judgments. And then we've seen now the trumpet blasts. And in between the sixth and seventh trumpet, and we have a little respite. And God says, no, church, you really are secure. My plans for you, my purposes are secure. And we've seen that. And then he wants us to see something else before we continue on. He wants us to see this glimpse. And Revelation has this repeating pattern of things. And so it, it's kind of like the concerto. It, you hear it, and then you hear it later in a fuller form. And so we see that here We see this glimpse of what's to come because God wants to reassure us. He wants to show us. He wants to take us on a tour, take us into the inner places to see what's really going on, what's what's really already determined. Because when, when you're living the Christian life, when you hear that, you know what, the church is here in the midst of tribulation and suffering, the church is is in all the middle of this. All through the first 11 chapters, the church is not absent, the church is present. And when you hear that, you think, oh no. And you might think, oh my goodness, it just keeps going on and on. When will Revelation end? But he wants to give us this glimpse, this hopeful sight to take us in the midst of uncertainty, this unrelenting image of the end times. Here's what's really true. The outcome is sure. We don't have to live as if we don't know who wins. You know, sometimes we live that way functionally, don't we? You ever, you ever live that way functionally? Yeah, if the outcome is in doubt. You ever, you ever live that way as if you're not sure who's going to win? Now, how do you know that, right? Anybody here ever worry? Anybody, anybody worry about the future? I do. Anybody ever struggle wondering what's going to happen next in life? Oh, no. As if that's not sure, as if God doesn't know what's going to happen next. Anybody here ever face anxiety? I mean, at all? Discouragement, Anxiety? I think this passage is meant for us so that we don't live as if we don't know who wins, but we can live knowing what's true. You know, many people live in anxiety or fear or worry as if they're not sure, as if the outcome's in jeopardy, is dependent on our performance, as if we have to perform in order for God to win. What we see here is a glimpse of the end, how we're to live in the middle. It's intended by God to change how we live here and now. And what we see, the very first thing that we see in this passage is that God's reign shall fully come. That's, that's, the, that's the first thing we see right at the beginning. It hits us hard. Look, look in verse 15. It hits us right at the beginning. God's kingdom reign shall come fully. Not, not partially. You know, not we hope so one day, but God's kingdom reign shall come fully. Look in your Bibles. It says, the kingdom of this world has become. There is a complete transformation. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. I've got a friend who sometimes when they hit a a part in a book that makes them a little uncertain, when it's a little bit tense, there's a a little bit of a build-up, and they're wondering, oh no, how's this going to turn out? Um, they immediately will flip to the end of the book because they hate anxiety, they hate worrying, they hate not knowing. For me, I hate that. that, I like that, I like that tension, except if it's in real life. But in a book, I like that, you know, I like wondering what's happening next and not knowing, quite knowing and trying to figure it out and think I'm really smart when I do figure it out because the author's put all those hints there for me. But 
this is like flipping to the end in the middle of the book. This, that's what we see here in Revelation 11. We're flipping to the end real quick. We get a glimpse. Here's what's really going to happen. Why? So you don't lose hope. So you don't stay in a place where you're unsure. The future's been written. We know that earlier in, in Revelation 10, in Revelation 10, 7, there's an explanation of what would happen and when the end times would come. Revelation 10, 7, it says, explains about the days of the last trumpet call that we're seeing here in advance. It says in Revelation 10, 7, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. What does that mean? Completed, finished, no more to be done. Just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So now in this chapter, the seventh trumpet has sounded God's kingdom has fully come. His mystery will be fulfilled. What we're seeing is a hint of the end. And we're going to come back again and see not only now we've seen all the throne of God and perspectives there. And then in 12 and on to about 18 or so, you're going to see the, the other side of things. The beast and the dragon. But for now, what we see is this, this completion of God's Mystery, his plans being fulfilled. Although the church is present in the middle of the storm, his people are preserved. They have no fear of death. This, this bringing to an end of the created order, all these things internal be followed by the new creation. And so what we're seeing here is this glimpse with all the kingdoms of this world and everything that is set against God. That's what the kingdoms of this world means. Every kingdom, every ruler, every authority that's set against God will be replaced, will be set down, will, will be put away. And there will only be one kingdom. There won't be lots of different kingdoms. There will be one kingdom, and it's become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ is what we see here. You know, when Jesus walked the earth and Pilate was questioning Jesus in the mockery of a trial that he had, Jesus said something that was to come in John 18, 36. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And what we're seeing now, what John has been given a glimpse of is that everything will one day completely change. There will be no worldly kingdoms. The heavenly kingdom replaces the kingdom of the world, the the world's kingdoms won't last. Worldly powers won't prevail. That would have been extremely important. Remember, this letter was written to seven specific churches. Real churches living in a real time. It was written to real churches for all time for the church to hear. And what the church needs to know is that the world's kingdoms won't last. Sometimes, if you're like me, sometimes it can feel like the world's kingdom rules. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like, you know, there is demonic forces ruling in the world, bad things are happening, it seems like the ruler of this world will continue to rule at times, because for a time, the devil has been given a degree of rule over the world, the dragon, the beast, have been given a time, but here's the good news for the church, that will not last. The kingdom of the world will not triumph in the end. Kingdoms of this world have no lasting authority, no matter who might claim to be an authority. Only the kingdom of the Lord and his Christ will prevail. Let me ask you a question. What authority intimidates you? Maybe you have an authority or a little kingdom in your life. 
Maybe that's a person for you. Maybe that is a boss for you. Maybe it is the current government situation. What intimidates you? What authority are you fearful of? What kingdom, let me ask another question, what kingdom are you living for? Are you living as if God's kingdom is the only one that will last? Or are you living for another type of kingdom? This teaching is actually meant to affect us practically. It's meant to be heard. Oh, that God's kingdom will come and forever reign and it's meant to be kept. Hey, whose kingdom am I living for? So I want you to consider that, you know, in your job and how you spend your money and how you spend your time and what you do with your body. Whose kingdom are you living for? What authority, what kingdom are you living under? What kingdom, what authority are you fearful of losing? I love that these loud voices. And by the way, this is the only place we see in Revelation where there's multiple loud voices all together as one singing as this heavenly choir. These loud voices, they declare it in John's vision as if it's past tense because it's already been written. This is not a book that's ending is in question. This is a book who's, who's already been written. There'll be no other opposing kingdom. I want you to get that truth. What kingdoms are you facing up against in your life? What opposition are you facing? What authority, what realm are you facing? Or are, are you facing demonic influence. Maybe you're facing opposition. Maybe you're facing all these different fears. It says no realm, no authority will, will, will stand. Everything will be overtaken by the kingdom of God. There will only be one kingdom. That's meant to be good news for us. So what kingdom are you afraid of? What kingdom are you worried about? What kingdom are you living for? Now today, for us in the United States, we can live sometimes functionally as if the United States is the kingdom that will last forever. And it's not. It's, it's not what we're meant to live for. We're grateful for our nation. We pray for our nation. We pray for our nation's leaders continually. But we must not live as if this country is our kingdom. All the kingdoms of the earth are going to be overthrown one day by the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And notice something else. God is our Lord, it says. The kingdom of our Lord. He's the one we serve. Is he your Lord? Is he the one you serve? Is he your king? Because his kingdom will last. And that's meant to give you confidence. His king, he is the king and he's the one we serve. And he'll reign not just for a short time but forever and ever. Is that good news to you? He's not gonna reign just for a limited time. It'll be forever and ever. All the kingdoms of the earth will be put down and he will forever reign. He will forever reign. He will never fail. You know, every earthly leader will disappoint you to some degree. Every one will let us down to some degree. Everyone will fail, will eventually go away. No matter how great the leader is that you follow, what, if it's at your church, if it's um, in the home, if it's in government, every leader will eventually go away. But here's the good news. Here's what it's saying. God's leader, his king, will never go away. He'll never go away. He'll never disappoint. And he's been raised from, from life to death, proving he has supremacy over death, and he'll never die again. He'll reign forever and ever. That hope is meant to function for us each and every day. It's not meant to be something that's just, oh, that's nice to know in the future, but it's meant to affect how we feel about the here and now. You know, it's meant to affect us when we are worried about the future, when we're concerned, when we're fearful, when we're anxious. 
And if you're a human, I'm guessing you are sometimes fearful or anxious or worried or concerned. And you need to know, wait a minute, his kingdom, his authority will forever be. He will forever set all things right. All of our deepest longings, all of our prayers will be answered. And it's already a done deal in God's light and God's eyes. When we pray as a church, we're meant to pray, thy kingdom come. Here's what we see in Revelation 11. His kingdom has come. What we're praying for is his rule and his reign will be a, over all things will be a reality. And that's the glimpse we see is that will be true. Everyone who exalts himself above the name of Jesus will be humbled. Every spiritual force, every person, every sin will be subdued. Isn't that good news for you? You think, I can't beat this sin. I can't, I can't put it behind me. He says, no, his kingdom shall come. It'll be the only kingdom. You, too, will be under his kingdom. Every sin will be conquered. Every spiritual force subdued. And we're promised that he shall reign forever and ever. Handel's Messiah is really based on this full stop. He shall reign forever and ever. And the effect of that is it should make us want to give everything up for living for his kingdom. It's the fulfillment of Daniel's vision of the Son of Man. In Daniel 7 and verse 13, Daniel had this vision of what was to come. In Revelation, now John has this vision of what will forever be. Daniel saw in the night visions, he says, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. You think, why did Jesus call himself the son of man? Oh, it was in fulfillment of this passage. And I think we have that on the overhead for you, if you, in Daniel 7. One came like the son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So let me ask you again, what kingdom are you living for? He shall reign forever and ever. That truth should make us want to worship God with all that we are. And here's the thing we see in this passage. That's the appropriate response of all of the angelic leaders, the angelic rulers, the elders of the angels are falling down and they worship. And look in verse 16. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. What's our response to this great revelation? Is it stir your hearts to worship? Or are you just thinking, yeah, that's good, that's nice. If, if it doesn't stir your heart, it could reveal what we're living for and longing for most is not his kingdom. I'll say it again. If it doesn't stir your heart, I, I want to challenge you. Are you living for and longing for his kingdom? I don't want you to experience condemnation, but I do want you to be provoked by this passage. And here's the good news. We can just repent and seek first his kingdom. The, these angelic elders, they have the right perspective. Look down at verse 17. These two verses, they're content of the worship and they worship God for bringing about his kingdom. Look, look what they say. They say, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. And I want you to stop there for a second. They don't do what we see four other times in Revelation, which is normally who is and who was and who is to come. It's not that here because he has come. There is, there is no few. Who, who is and who was. Two states. Who is and forever is, and who was. He says, for you've taken your great power, your, your mega power. It's the same word that we kind of get megaphone. We get, we get mega power. He's, he's taken up his great power and begun to reign. He's the Lord God Almighty. He holds sway over all things. 
He's the ruler of all. That's how John announced, or Jesus announced himself to John back at the beginning of Revelation 1. If you look back in your Bibles, Revelation 1.8, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Later in chapters 18 to 22, we'll see that what's celebrated here is described in more detail. So we have a glimpse now. We're going to come back again in 18 to 22. But are you living as if Jesus has all the power? Do you live that way? How does it affect your prayers? Do you pray that way? Do you pray as if Jesus has all the power? Is that he will completely forever reign? Do you, do you, do you pray? Do you live? Do you have confidence and trust that that he's taken up his power and begun to reign. Don't be misled by whatever power seems to rule in your life. If you belong to the king, he's your Lord, you can be confident he's taken up his power, he's begun to reign, and one day he will fully bring it to completion. We can trust that, we can base our lives on it. His kingdom shall fully come, and his kingdom has eternal consequences. That's the second thing we see. Look down at verse 18. Is God's kingdom has eternal consequences. God's kingdom reign is eternal consequences. Look at verse 18. He says, The nations rage, but your wrath came, the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. He's letting us see something. He's letting us see hope here that every power will be put down, and there will be eternal consequences here and forever. We used to like to go on hikes. Uh, we still like to go on hikes. We just don't get to go as much, and hopefully in our sabbatical we will. But we used to go on hikes quite a lot when Julie and I were dating. And then um, we would take this guy with us who was a friend, and, and the three of us would go on hikes. And one day we decided, you know, we'll go out the back. Um, Julie lives, her parents live in Virginia, and behind their house is what they call Cup Mountain. I don't know what the real name it is, but that's, they kind of name it after that because it's behind their house, and their last name was Cup, is Cup. And so you kind of scramble up to the top, and then you'd, you'd hike along this ridge, and the ridge would kind of go, like the, most, most of the Blue Ridge, it kind of goes up and down, up and down, up and down, until it got to the end of the hike on, on Signal Knob. And so we took Todd up there, and I think I'd hiked the hike a few times, but I didn't remember it exactly, but the trail is just straight, you're walking the top of the ridge. But the problem is you go up, and then you go down, and then you go up, and then you go down. And when you're down, you feel like, oh my gosh, is this the last ridge? And you don't realize how many little ridges there are you're hiking across, and it can be daunting. Revelation can feel that way sometimes. It can feel daunting. We go up, we see this great vision. Oh my goodness. We go up, we see this great vision. We go down, we go up. And Todd kept asking me, he said, hey, um, when are we going to get there? I'm like, oh, it's just one more ridge. And then we go over that ridge and he was like, we're here. No, no, it's just one more ridge. We're there. No, no, it's just one more ridge. And I, I, I thought I knew, I didn't really know. But um, when we got up to the last ridge, we could see signal knob at the end and there was a refreshment that came. There was hope that came. Like, hey, if we can make this. What we see in Revelation here is, you know, the nations rage, but God's wrath, it's the same kind of root word there, the nations have a rage, but you'll go, God's rage will reign over them. Sometimes it can feel like, oh my goodness, we just hit the cycles of problems and difficulties, but we can get a glimpse of what really will happen and has eternal consequences. The nations rage, but your wrath came. What does that mean? No matter how much people rage against God, rage against Christians, rage against his people, rage against his plans and his purposes, God's wrath prevails against all who rage against him. That's good news for us as believers. 
It wasn't uncertain. It wasn't unsure. There's no ambiguity here. Their wrath isn't the final word. This is actually the fulfillment of, of Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, the psalmist had a prayer. He says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed. You know, look around you today. It's still happening. People are taking counsel against the people of the Lord, against the Lord is anointed. The psalmist says, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Yeah, I was thinking about um, how my brother, he used to put his hand on my head. He was five years older than me. So when I was five, he was 10. There was a significant gap in size at the time. Um, now we are about the same size, and I can take him now, but, um, but I couldn't back then, and he would put his hand on my head, and I would get so mad, and I'd be swinging at him, and I couldn't reach him because he's just had his hand out here, and he's holding my head away, you know, and he would laugh at me, at my, at my rage, and he would laugh, and that's kind of the imagery we have here. God's like, really? As if the nations are a challenge to him. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, in verse 5, and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. The rulers of the earth serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is meant to be an encouragement to us. The nations pour out their wrath, but God's wrath comes and his wrath will judge the dead. Now, in this, in this context, the dead here that are being judged is not everybody who has died. This is the dead in contrast with those who are his prophets, the saints, those who fear his name. You look down in verse 18, it, it has the, the, the dead will be judged, and for rewarding your servants, this time will come, and the prophets and saints, those who fear your name. It doesn't mean that everybody won't be judged, but here, in this passage, there is a contrast between those who will be judged and those who will be rewarded. The dead, those who die apart from Christ, will be judged. And those who will be rewarded are his servants, the prophets, the saints, those who fear his name, both small and great. There is eternal consequences to his kingdom. His kingdom reign is eternal consequences. And the question for each and every one of us is, whose kingdom are we a part of? If you're not a part of God's kingdom, your, your future is sure unless you repent. And you'll be judged. And the judgment will be true and sure. Every sin, instead of being paid for by Christ, will be, you will pay for eternally. But for those who place their faith in Jesus, and this is available to each and every person here, here's when the time will come for rewarding your servants, the prophets, the saints. And you think, well, I don't know if I'm any one of those things. Well, yes, you are, because it says those who fear your name, both small and great. No matter how small you are or how great you are, we will be rewarded for following him. Do you know you're God's servant? If you do know you're God's servant, you'll be rewarded. 
How do you know? Do you fear God's name? Do you reverence him in in your actions, in your life? Don't pretend. Don't play at being a Christian. Don't think that, hey, because I I walked the aisle when I was four years old and I've lived how I wanted to my whole life, that you're good. You're okay. You're not. If you're not placing your faith in Jesus, if you're not saying, hey, I fear the name of Jesus and that's seen in my life, that doesn't mean I'm afraid of him, but it says, in all that I do, I'm aware that I'm doing things for his name, however poorly, however imperfectly. Are you living for that? Are you aware of living? for God's name. If so, you can be confident. You'll be rewarded. At the same time, the other eternal consequence we see is that all the destroyers of the earth will be destroyed. There will come a time when the destroyers of the earth will be destroyed. Now, now what is that talking about? It's probably talking about Babylon and and Abaddon, Abaddon actually means destroyer. We saw that in previous chapters in Revelation. There will come a time when every earthly power, Babylon itself, the, all the kings of this world that are arrayed against him, the, the demonic forces, the Abaddon who comes out of the pit, the destroyer, will be destroyed. And what a wonderful assurance that is. All the sin, all the groanings of this world. This, this world, Paul tells us, is it groans waiting for the adoption, the redemption of his sons. We too groan inwardly waiting for our final redemption when the redemption of all creation will come and, and we can be sure the destroyers of the earth will come. His kingdom will come fully and it has eternal consequences and his kingdom reign means something else. It means we can be sure of his promises. That's the third thing we see. God's kingdom reign means we can be sure of his promises. We can be sure Look up. We're, we're walking in this life, and at times you go up the hill, and you think, oh my goodness, this hill feels like it's going to last forever. And then you go downhill, and, and then you go up and down, and you see you lose perspective. We, we need to see that we can be sure of his promises. And so what do we see? We see this pulling back, pulling back of what's really happening in heaven. In verse 19, God, God reveals what's happening in heaven. Verse 19 says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened. The ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, earthquake, and heavy hail. And you might be thinking, hang on, wait a minute. I've read Revelation, and it says that there's no physical temple. It says that there's no temple in heaven. So what's the, what in the world's going on here? Well, if you read it in context, if you read it in the context of the New Testament, God's temple is now with his people. It's, it's Jesus and his people. His presence, the place where his presence is made known is with his people. This isn't talking about a physical temple because Revelation itself tells us that both before and after. So what's it talking about? It's talking about the place where God's holy presence is. And that that word for temple there is actually just the word that's used for holy place or the holy of holies. So God opens up the holy of holies and shows us. And what do we see there? We see this Ark of the Covenant. You think, well, hang on. The Ark of the Covenant didn't exist when John was writing. It wasn't physically there anymore. And I thought that you know, no longer does God make his presence in a physical device or place that's built with human hands. Well, that's true, but what is the ark symbolic of? What does the ark represent? It represents the mercy of God, what the mercy seat is. It represents the covenant of God, the grace of God, where he, he covenants with his people. And so what do we see here? We see that in the holy of holies, his covenant is safe and secure. His promises are kept His mercy seat remains. His grace is available. And just like in in Moses' day when when Moses came down with 
with the tablets and put them into the ark. And God said, hey, I want you to see that now my presence is here with you. He's, he's showing us that his presence forever will be with his people and his temple. And so he seals that with flashes of lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Same things that happened in Moses' time. But now God makes his, his presence manifest perfectly in his son. Hebrews 1 it tells us, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of high, on God on high, and having become as much superior to angels as the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs, what are we reading about in Revelation? It's the fact that his promises are secure in heaven. God's promises, his covenant, his mercy, his grace is secure. It's kept in heaven for us. Unfading, undefiled, kept in heaven for us. Why does God repeat the themes so much in Revelation? Why do we have these kind of cyclical repeated themes all throughout? Because we need it. We need it. You know, don't read Revelation thinking, oh, here we go again. You know why we need it to hear that here we go again? Because we need to know, just like the early church needed to know, that God's kingdom will fully come, that all of his promises are sure, that he will reign forever. His reign has eternal consequences. You know, we live in, a, in the midst of a lot of the same types of trials and temptations that the early church faced. They were, if you remember, I'm going to keep drawing your attention back to this back when we come back as well, is, is that the early church, they faced a lot of temptations that we face as well. They, tempt, they were faced with the temptation to give up when things get hard. And say, it's just not worth it. I can't do it. I'm not going to be able to endure and, and to lose hope and lose faith. This is too hard. I can't take this trial. I can't take this temptation. God, this is too much for me. And to lose heart, we're tempted that way. We're tempted actually as well to give in at times because it looks like this, earl, this earthly kingdom, this world's kingdom reigns and rules. And so we're tempted at times to say, you know what, I'm going to fudge a little bit. I'm going I'm to kind of be like the world and hide who I really am because, you know what, I really feel like this world has power. And so I live that way. And so we're tempted to live that way. And what we need to see is this glimpse of the future is that his kingdom shall fully come. This kingdom reign has eternal consequences and we can hold fast to his promises because they're secure in heaven. So what's our response be to all of this? Well, first I think it's what we see here is to worship. To center our lives on, on his covenant which is secure in heaven with him. His covenant that will never go away. What's that look like? It looks like trusting in him with all your life. Confessing worry, anxiety, saying, God, you know, I've, I've lost sight of the fact that you shall reign forever and that you've already taken up your power and begun to reign. Lord, let me put aside worry and anxiety and fear. Let me live day by day trusting in your kingdom. Thy kingdom comes, thy will be done. Because your kingdom's secure. Live for his kingdom, no other. Worship him for who he is. Trust all that he accomplished. Trust his promises. Rest in him. Let me ask you again. What are you anxious about? What are you worried about? 
his kingdom will last forever. He shall reign forever and ever. We can trust his covenant because he keeps it secure in his almighty, holy presence. When Ian's sharing a, a song with you, it's a, an old school Christian contemporary song, but they got it right. I think I've got the lyrics for you as well. It's the song of the redeemed. That's what the song we hear and see here in Revelation 11 is. We, we see the song of the redeemed. That's what this, this song is in Revelation. Song of the redeemed rising from the African plain. The song of the forgiven drowning out the Amazon rain. The song of Asian believers filled with God's holy fire. It's every tribe, every tongue, every nation. A love song born of a, born of a grateful choir. Let rise above the four winds, caught up with the heavenly sound. Let praises echo from the towers of cathedrals to the faithful gathered underground. Of all the songs sung from the dawn of creation, some were meant to persist. I love that. Of all the bells rung from a thousand steeples, none rings truer than this. It's all God's children singing, glory, glory, hallelujah, he reigns, he reigns. It's all God's children singing, glory, hallelujah, he reigns, he reigns. And then I love how it ends. And all the powers of darkness tremble at what they've just heard. Because all the powers of darkness can't drown out a single word. We're to live in the good of that. We're to glory in that. Glory, glory. All God's children sing out. Glory, glory, hallelujah. He reigns. He reigns. Amen? Let the band come up and we'll go ahead and respond in worship.